From 1932 to 1972, the U.S. Public Health Service, also known as the PHS, conducted the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, an experiment that studied the progression of syphilis in black men. This study was conducted, in part, to validate the beliefs of the PHS that syphilis develops differently in black bodies than it does in white ones, and they believed that the disease, quote, wreaked its worst havoc on the cardiovascular systems of blacks, sparing their relatively primitive and underdeveloped brains, end quote. The study consisted of two groups, a group of 399 men with syphilis and a control group of 201 men, which had no symptoms of the sexually transmitted infection. Those who were sick were promised treatments that were wholly ineffective or that caused damage. The so-called treatments given to the patients who had syphilis were described in Harriet Washington's medical apartheid as being, quote, vitamins, ineffectual doses of arsenic, and a worse-than-useless mercury solve, end quote. In addition, doctors withheld penicillin from the participants in the study even after it was proven effective against syphilis, and when men in the control group contracted syphilis, they were simply moved to the diseased group, a clear violation of any experimental design. Not only were study participants lied to with the promise of treatments for their syphilis, but they were simply seen as medical specimens used to witness the disease's progression in black bodies. The Tuskegee Syphilis Study is unfortunately just one of numerous incidents of medical racism in United States history. Today's episode will trace some of this history while also demonstrating the ways that medical racism continues to manifest today. Welcome to our podcast, A Step Toward Justice. I am Dr. Justina Licata, and I'm a historian and professor. My research and teaching focus on late 20th century U.S. social policies, feminism, and reproductive justice. And I am Isabel Stevens, a history and theater major. We are researching, writing, and recording this podcast at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia, as part of the summer research program. In this six-episode series, we will be exploring the topic of reproductive justice and issues relating to it, such as abortion, eugenics, scientific and medical racism, and the LGBTQ community and the disability community. Please make sure to tune in every Wednesday, as new episodes will be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In today's episode, we will discuss the history of both scientific and medical racism and why it is important to study and learn about these topics. In order to do that, this episode will discuss the origins of American gynecology in the 19th century and the experiments of James Marion Sims, black maternal mortality, and the ways that medical racism is impacting people's experiences with COVID-19. I, Isabel, will be the main host of this episode. Though the syphilis experiment was conducted as recently as the 1970s, scientific and medical racism developed long before the 20th century. Ibram X. Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, traces the development of racism in the United States, including scientific racism. In his book, he points to two main theories about the supposed inferiority of African Americans, the climate theory and the curse theory, both of which were used to justify European colonialism. Proposed by French philosopher Jean Baudin in 1576, the climate theory speculates that, quote, Africa's heat had produced hypersexual Africans, and that, quote, intimate relations between the men and the beasts gave birth to the monsters of Africa, end quote. Essentially, the theory argues that Africa's intense heat from the sun caused Africans to be uncivilized beasts, more beasts than man. The curse theory, on the other hand, is one that is supposedly supported by the Bible. In this theory, it was the curse placed by God on Ham that caused Ham's descendants to be, quote, so black and loathsome that it might remain a spectacle of disobedience to all the world, end quote. These theories were the foundations of many beliefs around scientific racism, chief among them the supposed fact that Africans, and by extension African Americans, were biologically inferior. In addition to the two theories already mentioned, scientific racism was also supported by literature, including the Crania Americana. 
Crania Americana, a book published in 1839 by Samuel George Morton, discusses and catalogs the supposed differences between North and South American native skulls and skulls from other ethnicities and races by drawing from ideas about race that were falsely supported by contemporary scientists. The 19th century increasingly saw the use of science to justify racist ideas, and the Crania Americana was no different. The text, as well as the engravings in the book, supported the idea that Native Americans and African and African Americans were inferior to white people. With assumptions lying in part in the climate theory, Morton states that because of the different geographies where different people live, for example the Africans in Africa, there are inherent differences in morality and physicality, thus making groups that are non-European and non-white inferior. Medical racism, much like scientific racism, also discriminates against people using science and the practice of medicine. The mistreatment of people of color and poor people by the medical industry was, and in many ways still is, falsely supported by science and experiments that were done on people of color for the purpose of furthering research and science. This is evidenced by experiments done in the late 18th to mid-19th century on enslaved African and African-American women, or those who were identified as women. The 19th century, in particular, saw a blending of science and medicine which was presented primarily through medical journals. As the century progressed, these journals' popularity increased, particularly amongst slave owners, because the health of their enslaved people, which they viewed as property, was critical to their prosperity and the southern economy more broadly. These writings discussed perceived biological differences between black and white women, and therefore argued that they should be treated differently. For example, these medical writings contain discussions as to whether or not certain diseases, features, or characteristics like lasciviousness or sexual deviance were inherent in people of African descent. Despite wanting to highlight the biological differences between white and black women, ultimately doctors viewed black women as experimental specimens because their sexual organs and genitalia looked the same as a white woman's, an inherent contradiction in the practices of many 19th century medical doctors. In such a dehumanizing system like slavery, these abhorrent contradictions flourished in medical writings and are seen in the work of Dr. James Marion Sims, who will be discussed in the next section. As discussed in the previous episode, an enslaved person's value, usually women or those who were identified as such, was based on their capacity to reproduce. As such, many experiments were done to ensure that enslaved women could continue to reproduce and thus perpetuate the system of bondage in which they were oppressed. And there were many doctors willing to do such experiments. In her book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, Deirdre Cooper Owens mentions several of these doctors, including Dr. James Marion Sims, often called the father of modern gynecology. Something to note before we get into the next section. The following section discusses James Marion Sims's invasive experiments done on enslaved African and African American women. The following language will be graphic for descriptive purposes, so please feel free to skip ahead if you are uncomfortable with descriptions of violence. James Marion Sims operated on enslaved women, and some of his experiments were horrific. Born in Lancaster County, South Carolina in 1813, Sims attended Charleston Medical College and later Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. After his studies, he returned to South Carolina, but when his reputation was ruined by the death of two of his patients, he relocated to Mount Meigs, Alabama, where he set up a women's hospital, primarily for enslaved women. It was in this so-called hospital where Sims's horrific experiments occurred from 1844 to 1849. Most of Sims's gynecological experiments focused on repairing vesicovaginal fistulae, a condition that developed in many women after a difficult childbirth. Owens describes the condition as, quote, When vaginal tearing occurred, the woman's bladder became exposed because of the fistula, hole, formed while pushing the child out the birth canal. This condition often left many women ostracized because of the infections and strong odors it could cause. Additionally, the condition prevented women from having further children, giving more incentive for Sims and other slave owners to fix the condition as soon as possible. 
Sims was determined to find a cure for this condition, not to help the women he was treating, but to advance his own medical career. Toward that end, Sims leased several enslaved women from their owners and performed experiments on them. Three of the approximately 12 women Sims operated on were named, Anarka, a 17-year-old girl, Lucy, and Betsy. The other patients' names are not mentioned in the historical records. After two years of failed experiments, Sims lost the support of the local white community, including his medical assistants. As a result, Sims trained many of the enslaved women he experimented on to also act as his surgical nurses. The surgeries that Sims performed on these women to try and cure vesicovaginal fistulae were incredibly painful and were performed without anesthesia, done in part because it was believed that black people could not experience pain the way white people did. In addition, Sims gave the women opiates post-surgery that, quote, kept them dehydrated, constipated, and bound to their beds for at least two weeks while their bladders and vaginas healed. Another horrifying point is the fact that because these women were viewed as property, they could inherently not give consent to the procedures. Not only were these surgeries extremely painful as they were performed without anesthesia, but Sims muted their stories. In his writings, Sims stated that the women wanted the surgery because the condition made it difficult to participate in society, but we cannot know this for certain. The voices of Anarka, Lucy, Betsy, and the other enslaved participants are not present in any of the surviving documents. Not only were these women dehumanized through their brutal treatment and through the use of their bodies as specimens, but history leaves no record from these women's experiences. After five years of failed experiments, Sims finally repaired Anarka's fistula with the use of silver sutures. This was her 30th surgery. These experiments and the resulting success of the silver sutures propelled Sims's career and were considered to be groundbreaking discoveries. For centuries, Anarka, Lucy, Betsy, and the other enslaved participants were forgotten. Unfortunately, the horrors of medical racism perpetuated by Sims and others are not in our past. Medical racism is still very much present today, as seen through the black maternal mortality rate in the United States. The issue of black maternal health and the black maternal mortality rate is astounding. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, noted as recently as April 2021 in a White House report that black people are three to four times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than any other racial or ethnic group. In fact, according to ProPublica, a non-profit news organization, black women are 243% more likely than white women to die of pregnancy or childbirth problems. Black maternal mortality is not a new issue. As Dr. Jamila Parrott, a board-certified OBGYN and president and CEO of Physicians for Reproductive Health, states in a Repro's Fight Back podcast, quote, Because of the racialized experience of being black in the United States and receiving care in our health systems, we know that racism and bias is part of our nation's history, and medical care is not uniquely excluded from that legacy, end quote. In addition to the medical racism that many people of color, and particularly black people, face, the issue of medical racism goes beyond wealth or status. In other words, being in a place of privilege, economically, socially, or otherwise, does not exclude people of color from incidents of medical racism. Serena Williams experienced a potentially fatal medical complication following her daughter's birth. Williams, who suffers from a history of pulmonary embolisms, blood clots, blocking, and artery, believed that she had developed more after the delivery. When saying this to the nurse, between gasps, the nurse shrugged her off. The author of the Vogue article writes, quote, The nurse thought her pain medicine might be making her confused, end quote. After a series of tests, Williams was proven correct, and the doctors then treated the blood clots that had formed in her lungs, among other complications. Williams' treatment highlights the prevalence of medical racism, even in the modern day. It is because of issues like the black maternal mortality rate and issues of medical racism that make these topics so important in discussions of reproductive justice, because the right to raise a child is a central component of the reproductive justice framework. Jacqueline Clardy Josephs, a student at the college, comments on her own experiences with medical racism in an interview I did with her. Uh, there's two situations that are coming to mind. Um, 
And in both of them, I don't think I was thinking of it as like a racism type situation. It was just very like off-putting. Um, however, being in Dr. Lakata's class and reading Killing Black Body kind of reshaped that this experience was like not normal and should not have happened even further. Um, so the first one was when I was in high school. I uh, was doing uh, cross country and track and field. And so uh, towards the end of the season, I had gotten a stress fracture. And so I was in a walking boot and everything. And I had gone to one of my follow-ups with the orthopedic surgeon. And it was like summertime. So I'm dressed for summertime. You know, I got shorts. I got a sandals on, et cetera. And for whatever reason, in my appointment, he starts asking me about like what I had been, what I eat. And, you know, I was like, food. Like, I think I said things like chips or pretzels. Like the right, I don't know. Like, I didn't think there was anything odd about this. Um, and he was like, well, you really shouldn't be eating that. That That's messing up your bones. You wouldn't have the stress fracture if you just didn't eat any chips. And I was like, huh? Um, and then he said the same thing about the sandals. He's like, this is jacking up your feet. You're not going to be able to do this. And the whole time, like the food thing is honestly what keyed me in because I've had a lot of weird conversations with people about like my eating and how I look and everything. And I was just like, why, why are we bringing this up at the, the doctor for my stress fracture? Like, you know why I'm in here for. Um, and so when I left that appointment, I remember telling him, oh, I was like, that was just not, that was uncalled for. Like he didn't need to be talking about my food and about my weight as if that had anything to do with the stress fracture. And I know for my mom's part, like it was just kind of like, just leave it alone or, you know, well, we could just fix this like just kind of trying to brush it off as it was a one-off experience and I hadn't really thought about the situation any further than that one and then fast forward I was now in college still running and I'd had migraines off and on uh, through high school by the time I got in college it was now like an actual problem where it was going to keep you keeping me in bed and everything and so um my athletic trainer was like okay go get her we're going to refer you out so you can go see somebody so I went and saw a neurologist uh, near my school and she I was already very nervous because I was going to a doctor's appointment by myself which I had not done previous and I was like in a new area this wasn't my my home doctor or anything um and I had everything I had everything like all the notes things that I thought had been prompting my migraines um everything that I thought they would need to have this conversation and so when I went in she had like a student assistant there which kind of made me a little nervous but I felt a little bit kind of a little better because I was like well hopefully nothing like this is this big of a thing that him shadowing is not gonna be a problem and I start talking and explain to her like my symptoms and when it all started everything what I thought it was and almost from the bat she was just like you don't have migraines you have headaches and I was like um okay I, I don't and I was like well I have all this stuff like explaining it and you know when I had gone to my doctor previous that's what he said and she was like no that's not what it is like if you had migraines it would be this 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 and this and I was just like well okay like again just still very confused and she just kept every time she wanted to ask a question I'm answering it it came with no that's not what's actually happening and I was like so I'm just like imagining all this and it didn't take very long through the appointment that I was like in tears and I was crying in her office and she was like oh this is normal all my patients cry and I was like that's not normal. I'm not supposed to be like bawling in your office. Um, and so I left that appointment. First of all, I didn't want to go back again for any like neurology appointments because they wanted me to come back and stuff. And I think what was the very, what's the oddest thing is that she said I didn't have migraines, but she's like, but I'm going to treat you for migraines. So I was like, so what is, just say it. Like, that's not, when I tell people this is my, my medication, this is migraine medication, this is headache medication, this isn't how this works. And so again, I just walked through that situation like, what? And of course, her saying like all of her patients cry, that she, 
like I was that was not normal and so like I kind of mentioned in the beginning it wasn't until being in Dr. Lakai's class and really the class that was that set off for the uh, American Culture Studies Reproductive Justice Symposium because that convened in with a paper somewhere with everything I was reading in that book I was like hold on a second I might be on to something and so thinking about my two experiences and just even though I have not met another person who has probably gone through what I went through just the idea that that was off-putting enough that that should not be happening to me and the feeling that if this was somebody else who was not black that this would not have happened to you you would have not had anyone saying that um was enough for me to be like you know what that's that's what this was and i feel pretty comfortable in saying that that was the case the following section contains clips from a video originally posted on facebook by dr susan moore what follows is distressing so please be warned beforehand over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, medical racism has impacted the ways people of color have been treated, and in some cases, this treatment, or lack of treatment, has led to deaths. Dr. Susan Moore, a black woman who contracted COVID-19 in late 2020, faced racist medical treatment while seeking care for the disease. In a video posted to Facebook, Dr. Moore discussed how she was being treated, commenting on the racist treatment she was receiving, such as doctors and nurses denying her symptoms and pain. Then, he further stated, you should just go home right now and I don't feel comfortable giving you any more narcotics. I was in so much pain from my neck. My neck hurt so bad. I was crushed. He made me feel like I was a drug addict. And he knew I was a physician. I don't take narcotics. I was hurting. You have to show proof that you have something wrong with you in order for you to get the medicine. I put forward and I maintain if I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that. And that man never came back and apologized. This is how black people get killed, when you send them home and they don't know how to fight for themselves. As a result of inadequate, medically racist care, Dr. Moore died on December 12, 2020. This story is not a unique one. COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted communities of color and poor communities, communities that are among the most vulnerable in the population. According to an article published in the Harvard Law and Policy Review, quote, people of color, especially black people, are more likely to die from COVID-19, end quote. The racist and xenophobic rhetoric that surrounded the virus and its origins, in part due to ex-President Donald Trump calling COVID the, quote, Chinese virus, has resulted in, quote, instances of racial stigmatization and violence against people of Asian descent, end quote. This, however, is not the first time that rhetoric around diseases and their spread has been negatively directed at a community. As W.E.B. Du Bois stated in his 1899 work, The Philadelphia Negro, quote, particularly with regard to tuberculosis, it must be remembered that African Americans are not the first people who have been claimed as its peculiar victims. The Irish were once thought to be doomed by that disease, but that was when Irishmen were unpopular, end quote. This issue is not a contemporary one, as over 100 years later, people of color are yet again being blamed for being vectors or creators of diseases when that sentiment simply creates hatred. This episode opened with the Tuskegee study and closed with medical racism and racism in general in the time of COVID-19. I used these events to remind listeners that reproductive justice is a holistic movement that incorporates many aspects of society. Many may not consider the Tuskegee study as a reproductive justice issue, but if we use the reproductive justice framework, it can be viewed as one. The abuses those men faced on account of medical racism should be considered in larger discussions about reproductive justice. Not only that, but the wives and children of these individuals were impacted by the cruelty of the study as well. In regards to COVID-19, because at the time of creating this podcast, we are still in the midst of this pandemic, we do not have all the literature to make assumptions about the future or the past once the disease has run its course. That being said, with what literature we do have, it is important to acknowledge and make one thing above all else clear. Medical racism is still with us. 
It is not a thing of the past. As William Faulkner once said, quote, the past is never dead, it's not even past, end quote. We hope you found our second episode of A Step Toward Justice informative. Please subscribe to our podcast and tune in next week to listen to our episode in which we discuss the history of eugenics and sterilization practices in the United States. Thank you to my co-host, Dr. Justina Lakata, and thank you so much for listening. If you would like to see images and resources related to this episode, check out our Instagram account at A Step Toward Justice Podcast. We hope you will tune in next Wednesday for our next episode.